The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 49, Old World New Vampires, part two of my two-part interview with urban fantasy author Melissa F. Olson. In this episode, we'll be discussing Melissa's books, including her Old World series and the recent Nightshades trilogy of vampire novellas. I've got a few program notes. This episode kicks off our fifth season, something both Ella and I can hardly believe. Unfortunately, Ella couldn't be here for the interview, but she'll join me at the end of the program to tell us about her adventures at Convergence, a great con here in the Twin Cities that celebrated its 20th anniversary this summer. Lastly, remember you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, recently redesigned from top to bottom, now including blog posts from me and, as always, handy links to all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now... On with the show. When did you become a geek? When did you start uh, really reading stuff in the in the various genres? When did it grab you? Well, that's a complicated question with today's constantly changing standards of fandom and geekdom. <laughs> um, I I grew up a mystery fan, mm-hmm. um, and that was mainly because like like all voracious readers without a driver's license, I read whatever was in the house. And um, my, my parents read a lot. My dad read a lot of like Robert P. Parker Mm -hmm. and Michael Crichton. So I think Michael Crichton would probably be my first real like science fiction type Mm -hmm. reading. Um, But because I read that along with everything else in the house, it didn't stand out to me as Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm embracing science fiction now. You know, I'm 10. So um, I, it was less a conscious choice to pursue that genre and more of a what else is there here in my house. And then when I was in, I, I actually didn't read urban fantasy, the genre that I now almost exclusively write in, because uh, it never really occurred to me to do so. I read a little bit of Anita Blake, the Laurel K. Hamilton series. Mm-hmm when I was a teenager and that was very formative, but I read it mainly because I wanted more Buffy the Vampire Slayer and -hmm. I couldn't wait for, you know, the next new episode. Um, And eventually my parents cut the cable and we didn't get the, um, the CW. So I couldn't watch it anymore. And that was devastating. So I was more like (laughs) looking, you know, it was like the, the person who gets hooked on the nicotine gum because they can't have the cigarette. So anyway, I read Anita Blake for a while. um, And then when it became, she had she had a shift in in the, in the tone of the books where it became much more of an erotica series that happened to have other elements and mm-hmm. you know at fifteen or sixteen I wasn't really on board with that so I I kind of walked away from from all sort of urban fantasy reading and then you know I read mysteries for fun and I read a lot more of the literature for school um, and then when I was twenty three. I was visiting uh, my family in Chippewa Falls, and my little sister uh, was reading um, a book called, let's see, it's uh, Rob Thurman, and uh, it's the the Cal Leandro series, and it was called Night Wise Night 
Dang, it's so sad that I can't remember this. Are you looking it up? Trying to. To put me out of my mystery? (laughs) Misery? It was a Freudian slip. Yeah, the first... Okay, Nightlife. Thank you, iPhone. Uh, Okay, so the first book is called... the, The book that my sister was reading was called Nightlife. And I picked it up and I'm like, what is this? You know, and it was just a classic thing where you're home and your little sister's got something. So you pick it up and look at it. And I started reading this book and I was so instantly hooked. And after that, I, I, I read the rest of the books in the series at the time, I think there were about three or four and I needed more. So I kind of gave myself a crash course in urban fantasy at that point. And, you know, looking back now, it's so funny that I didn't get to it sooner because, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of had the roots there where I could have moved from, from Buffy and Anita Blake and gone that direction, but I was getting an English lit degree instead. So, uh, I kind of did this crash course in urban fantasy and I loved it and I consumed these books. And then I started writing around the same time, but I said I would never write an urban fantasy because it was, <laughs> it was already such a saturated market at that time. You know, there were so many vampire books. Um, and this is kind of before zombies stepped up as the, mm-hmm. the zeitgeist. It was just so grossly oversaturated. And I said, I'm never going to write one of these unless I can think of something that I haven't seen before. And that seemed like quite a long shot because all the books seemed like some variation of the same, you know, three or four creatures, Yeah. you know, vampires, werewolves, fairies, um, witches, you know, mix as needed was the recipe. Um, and then I kind of actually had an idea that I hadn't seen before. And I, I had tried to publish a mystery that nobody wanted because the main character was um, female and married and pregnant. And so no one wanted that kind of book because, you know, it was like a hard boiled PI book, but it was about a a woman who had actual like regular woman, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. things going on in her life besides the mystery. And I'd been trying to get it published for a year and my agent couldn't sell it. And so I started writing this urban fantasy with my idea And my agent published it before I'd finished the first draft or sold it before I'd finished the first draft. I mean, I'd lied and said it was finished and it wasn't, (laughs) but um, she was able to find a buyer for that one pretty quickly. So I want to step in there and admit that I've only read your Nightshades books. And so I'm very curious. You have these other series that all seem to be in part in, in in sort of a meta series a larger universe yes. there's spin-off yeah and so tell me and our listeners a little bit about that world and and sure. how it developed well the the idea that i had and i'm very careful to say that it's an idea that i hadn't seen before as opposed to an idea that nobody else had thought of um <laughs> but my idea that i had that i hadn't seen was a character who would sort of just by her physical presence undo whatever was magic in a given location. So I called it a null. um, And if you are close to a null, then you revert back to whatever you would be without magic. So if you've been turned into a vampire and you step close to her, you're a human again while you're within her range. And then you you step back out, you're a vampire again. Nice. So it's like uh, later, uh, much later, somebody uh, directed me to the fact that there's an X-Men character called Leech who does something similar. Where um, when somebody goes close to him, you know, they lose their mutation, but it's not a permanent loss. It's just the vicinity. So anyway, 
I came up with this null character and um, even though it was a saturated market, I sold the book to 47 North and they published two more books in the series about this null who, you know, her, her sort of day job is that she cleans up crime scenes from the supernatural. So if you're a vampire and you have a very sloppy evening meal and there's blood everywhere that you need to get rid of quickly, you would call her in. And she's the best person to do that because, you know, you really can't use any vampire powers on her because, you know, when she comes near, you're just going to be a a dude again. So in the world of the series, does the greater public know that it's a supernatural world? No. And that's a great question because all urban fantasy can kind of be divided into two categories. Either everybody knows and we're (laughs) trying to keep things civil or nobody knows and we're trying to keep things hidden yeah so my first series was the latter um where scarlet's job scarlet bernard is the main character and her job is to keep everything quiet and um, the fixer she's yes she is she's she's kind of a janitor is how she describes herself (laughs) um but you know she's a very sarcastic character with a chip on her shoulder And I loved writing her so much that I wanted to keep going. But my publisher wanted a different book after three. And so I said, well, you know, I've built this world. I had so much fun with it. Why don't I do a spinoff? And I think my model for this was sort of the uh, Kelly Armstrong Women of the Otherworld books, where she has like 13 books that are set in the same world with varying protagonists. And, you know, they'll step in and each other in and out of each other's books a little bit, which is sort of really, really fun. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to do something like that in a more structured way. So I did, a, you know, the first Scarlet trilogy, and then I did a spinoff trilogy starring a completely different character. And there was a little bit of connection, like the the character who stars in the other series, her name is Lex. And her twin sister is killed in Los Angeles in one of Scarlett's books. And Scarlett actually hides the body because that's her job is to hide Mm -hmm. gruesome murders. So they really, the two of them eventually meet and they of course start on on a really bad foot when Lex finds out that Scarlett, you know, sort of purposefully Mm -hmm. uh, cremated her sister. Um, So then I wrote the spinoff trilogy of Lex's. And that actually did very well. Um, most people found me that way. And my publisher was very smart in that they put the first chapter of my first Scarlet book at the back of the first Lex book. So a lot of people read Lex and then they went back and read the Scarlet trilogy. And and that's how I kind of sort of became known um, is is through that that kind of roundabout way. So then after I wrote the second or the, after I wrote the whole Lex trilogy, they were willing to let me go back and write more Scarlet. So then I wrote another Scarlet trilogy. Um, so there are nine books out now, two Scarlet trilogies and a Lex trilogy, but they're all set in the same universe, which I sort of colloquially refer to as the old world. Mm-hmm. And the book I'm writing right now in my home life um, when I'm not talking about Frankenstein <laughs> is uh, is a new Lex book. So I'm trying to kind of, in theory, I love doing, you know, one trilogy and then the other and then the other. It's great for me because the the protagonists, the all those books are in first person, but the protagonists are so wildly different. Mm-hmm. Um, Scarlet is very much a reluctant hero. You know, she's she's John McClane in the yeah. crawling through the air shaft. Like that's that's very much her where Lex is a um, former soldier and an Iraq war vet, veteran. 
um, and has this just, you know, ingrained sense of sort of duty and responsibility. So they're so fun to write. Um, and I love writing scenes where the two of them talk uh, or, you know, fight or whatever it might be. Um, but then while after I had sold my first book, but before it was published, I decided to go to grad school and get an MA so that I could teach um, college. Ah, okay. And so it was a very weird position to be in grad school, having already sold your first book, but it was a genre book, yeah. which is like something on the bottom of everyone else's shoe. Yeah. So grad school didn't quite know what to do with me because I had sold a book, which is the dream, but it was a genre <laughs> book, which is garbage. Um, but while I was in grad school, I did take a class on screenwriting, which was sort of fun because I had a film degree. So I had a lot of the background already. And one of the projects for that was to come up with a your own original screenplay. And that's actually when I developed the story that would eventually become Nightshades. Mm, okay. Um, it was supposed to be my, – my idea at the time was that it, it would be a TV pilot. And one thing you don't see on TV, you see a lot of supernatural um, TV shows, but they're very serialized. serialized. There aren't very many – like procedural yeah. supernatural shows. Uh, the TV show Supernatural probably comes closest, but even that show has quite a bit of, you know, plot lines that yeah. carry through the whole season. You know, there's always a big bad that we build up to. So I wanted to write, you know, like somebody later compared it to uh, like not CSI. What's the one with the FBI profilers? Oh, criminal minds yeah criminal minds with vampires is what is what one reviewer yeah. eventually called it and i thought that was really funny because that was kind of my goal i think yeah. i was watching a lot of ncis with my dad at the time well and the interesting thing first off i like that procedural setting mm -hmm. um but then comparing and contrasting with your other work uh in nightshades and switchback we get vampires you approach from a more scientific perspective yes. as opposed it's, to your other stuff is the supernatural vampire. Right, and I wonder right. if you want to talk a little bit about those two different approaches. Absolutely. Um, I knew when I, so when I was planning this as a TV pilot, you know, because I really outlined most of the, what what eventually became Nightshades. It would really um, be a I, great TV show too. I mean, it's all, well, thank you. All the elements are there for that yeah. kind of storytelling. Right. Um, but when I was planning it, I knew that I didn't want to do a big universe where there's many, many different kinds of creatures. Mm -hmm. I did not want to write um, where there's, you know, shifters and fairies and whatever. I wanted to keep it as realistic as possible um, because to me that makes it infinitely more interesting when like – in all of urban fantasy, you need realism to ground the fantasy. And I really wanted to lean on the realism and the sort of, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not even realism so much as the sort of uh, crime criminal procedurals. So, you know, some of the influences, I would say, were like Batman, where, you know, his stories are always best when he, it is like him and like these street level th thugs doing realistic 
crimes. Um, or Blade was another big one because the the first Blade movie is very gritty and it's very sort of dark, but it it has a realism to it because, you know, vampirism is really like a disease that you can catch, you know, and so they have a virologist who's who's fighting it. So I, I, I really wanted to write in that vein as opposed to the like very widespread, sprawling, supernatural universe. And I, so I wanted to, to kind of keep it sort of locked down. And so I made a few decisions to make that happen. One of them was to ha- not use the word vampire very much. Um, in, in the book, vampires call themselves shades. That's the term that they preferred. Um, they, you know, they sneak around in the shadows and uh, they, they see themselves as, they don't really see themselves as vampires because that's sort of a loaded term, Yeah, you know? Um, they, they, they don't like that word very much. So, you know, event occasionally someone will call them that in a derogatory sense, because, you know, nightshades isn't set in a vacuum. Like they, they've heard vampire stories, but you actually then have them, but, but, you know, all of the like sort of supernatural things we attribute to vampires, the, uh, religious aversion, for example, or stake to the heart, you know, those are all sort of superstitions. Um, and you even eventually have shades who sort of have come to believe their own press and they think, <laughs> you know, that they should like hide from Bibles or whatever when that's mm-hmm. not true. So anyway, that is that's how that that series kind of came about. I really wanted to do something different. And at the time, I was really enjoying Christopher Farnsworth President's Vampire series, which is a trilogy and um, a few short stories and novellas now about, uh, you know, a vampire from like the Civil War era who swears service and loyalty to the office of the president of the United States. So the president can send him on missions. Mm -hmm. And it's it's kind of, you know, there there are more creatures in that universe, but it's a very sort of realism based Mm -hmm. universe. And it's written in third person. There are multiple uh, POVs. And I really wanted to to play with that. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, it started as a grad school project and um, I didn't finish it. I didn't finish writing it. I, I kind of put it away because uh, grad school, I was busy and I had a uh, small children. And by the end of grad school, I was expecting my second. So there was a lot going on. Yeah. Um, but then years and years later, I met um, an editor named Lee Harris, who yeah. was just starting up the novella division for Tor. Um, under the sort of tour.com banner. And he, I met him at a conference and when it was a timing miracle because he happened to be looking for novellas and he contacted me and said, you know, do you have anything? Do you have a story that you've been sitting on? And at the time I was, you know, putting out old, working my butt off on old world books Mm -hmm. and I had was contracted for more of them and I didn't have any original ideas. I was so just overwhelmed with keeping up what I was doing. Um, but I thought, I mean, I have this thing. I I did develop an entire world and I developed all the characters and I gave them all backstories and I have the pilot. And the thing that really appealed to me was that we sort of see, we, we see a lot of literary adaptations onto film where one full length novel equals one two hour movie. Yeah. And I thought it would be a really interesting pro- um, project to do it in reverse, where one one-hour pilot translates into 
a novella, which is yeah. a, you know, a short book. Most of my books, my, my old world books are about 90,000 words. And all of the Nightshades books are between 40 and 45,000. So they're right about, right around half. Um, and so I, I wrote Nightshades, I structured it like a pilot with, you know, the, the act breaks that you would have for commercials and, uh, you know, the multiple characters and POVs and everything. Um, I had so much fun writing it because I got to do a lot of things that I hadn't gotten to do yet. Like right from the villain's perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd never gotten to do that in my other, in my other series. Um, and it, it was a great time. It, it was set in Chicago and everything and enough people liked it that they asked, you know, that I was accepted for two more. So switchback came out last year and, um, the third book in the series outbreak will be out in June. Um, June 6th, but you know, if you know someone, you might be able to get a copy earlier. (laughs) I am, uh, I'll keep that in mind. Yes. Yes. I'm looking, Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it because I find the, the, the mix of the procedural and the vampires is fun and the characters are nicely layered. Um, you know, and they're all going through their own various personal issues and trying to deal with having this shade in their midst and, and it's, right. uh, yeah. So it's, there's a lot of great right. character stuff going on there. Well, and I should say like the basic premise of Nightshades is that uh vampire, w- one of the things that drew me to writing this story is that, like I said before, you do see a lot of urban fantasy works where the supernatural is out and everyone knows about it. However, in those stories, the supernatural has always been out for years, you know, yeah. uh, the Jane Walker or the Jane yellow rock, um, series where she is a skinwalker. They they've been out since the sixties, you know, the Charlene Harris books with Sookie Stackhouse. I think they've been out for eight or 10 years. I wanted to write about the five minutes after the world yeah. finds out that vampires are real, because I think there would be such a struggle to, figure out legislature and figure out who's policing them. And are we, you know, are they all the enemy? Are they monsters? What are we doing here? Um, And I'm glad that I did not write this book sooner because when, by the time I was ready to write the book and, and, you know, I had a, a goal and everything, Facebook was what Facebook now is. And I was seeing a lot of natural disasters where everybody would get upset on Facebook for like a day or two, and then they would all go back to their life. You know, there would be a tsunami or an earthquake on the other side of the world, and hundreds of thousands of people would be killed. And this is a thing that still happens. And there's like, you know, a couple of days where people are really upset about it, and they do fundraisers, and then we all just go back to the funny dog videos. Uh And so I'm glad I didn't write the book when I originally conceived of it, because by the time I wrote it, one of the things that I had kind of theorized was that if we did find out that vampires are real, we would all be really worked up about it for like three days on Facebook. And then we'd all go back to the funny dog videos. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens. People don't want to hear about vampires. Like they have found out that there's a virus that, you know, 
requires people to uh, consume human blood in order to live, but they don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable and because they're very focused on putting one foot in front of the other. So nobody really wants to hear about vampires or they just want, you know, the government to make it go away, like to solve the problem. And so the, the book is about the, the division of home, Homeland Security, or the the FBI, you know, branches off a Bureau of Preternatural um, Investigations, and their job is to quietly get rid of any vampire problems so that the public doesn't have to deal with it because, you know, that would interrupt from our funny dog videos. And so, you know, the the book is about this this young, very ambitious agent who is tasked to uh, take over the FBI or the the BPI in the Chicago area because everybody keeps being killed. Like the entire Chicago uh, staff keeps getting murdered. And this is the guy that like is assigned to go in and like figure out what the heck is happening. And uh, so the first thing he does is think, I'm going to hire a shade to be on my team. Yep. And uh, so he hires a woman who is actually a vampire to join the team um, of for solving vampire crimes. And through this sort of accident mistake, he ends up getting one of the two most powerful shades in the world. So that's a very long-winded explanation <laughs> of the setup. I apologize. You can edit most of that out. Um, but that's, that's kind of how I came up with it. And I did not expect to have as much fun as I've had with with the Nightshades books. You know, with Switchback, Night, Nightshades is about the creation of the team. It's about the coming together. It's the pilot. Switchback is my comment, social commentary on um, picture-perfect suburbia mm-hmm. and what happens when you send vampires into picture-perfect suburbia. It's set in um, one of the towns on the North Shore of Chicago, very similar to what all of the like John Hughes movies were set Um, because John Hughes actually lived in this area and he invented a small town where he set all these movies. Well, I invented a small town uh, (laughs) where I send in vampires. Um, But, but I really wanted to talk about toxic masculinity and suburbia and um, with outbreak. The third book is, is kind of, tying up a lot of those threads. Um, but it's also about, you know, okay, so we've got this team, we've, we've put the team together, but where does our loyalty go? Are we loyal to the FBI? Are we loyal to each other? Are we loyal to this woman that we now know is a shade and holy crap, she's, you know, an evil vampire in our midst. Um, so, you know, the third book is a lot about looking at these sort of ties and deciding what's most important. And it it also kind of forces the the events of the previous two books have kind of forced the public to pay attention to shades, which is an uncomfortable feeling for everyone. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I really loved writing these books. I had the best time with them. Um, I kind of laugh because all of the reviews I see are like, well, they should be longer and (laughs) they're, you know, they're novellas. They're, they're intentionally short which was not my act, not actually my decision. They would not have been published as long books. Like they were sold as novellas. Yeah. But I, I, I take it as both. I take it as a frustrating compliment that, you know, people always wish that they were 
there was more and they were longer. Yeah, they want more. But you develop a storyline that can be told in that amount of words. Right. And, it, it, you know, it, this the whole project was kind of, it, it came about in a very unusual way. You know, usually with writers, you, you have the idea and you write it or you at least write up like an outline and some chapters and then you sell it somewhere. You know, your agent has to basically do a hunt and find someone who wants it and then you sell it somewhere. And this was just so strange because it was conceived as a TV show mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and then I actually had an editor who asked me just because of the timing of this new yep. novella division, you know, and it, it's not like he would have sold, he would have bought anything I came up with that the idea happened to, to work for the, the person and the situation. But, you know, it was just everything about this book was the, everything about how the book came to be published was kind of unusual. For any listener who is a beginning writer, it underscores the lesson, never throw anything away. Exactly. That is so true. I have I have a, a folder that I think I've, you know, optimistically labeled the morgue that <laughs> is just projects that like I started and they were garbage. And I'm still convinced it's all garbage. But in this case, you know, I pulled something out of there that, you know, became one of my favorite things to write. I have so much fun with those books. And I have, you know, it's it's fun for me too because of the procedural aspect. You know, procedural television is not always done well. And so it has a very bad reputation because there are so many knockoffs that are just knockoffs. Uh, but when you look at like the early years of some of these shows, the original NCIS is a good example. You know, the first probably six seasons were really great examples of how this genre can work. And it it works because you have characters you care about that are well-drawn, that have places to go. Um, I think eventually a lot of TV shows, you know, they they make a lot of mistakes after six, eight seasons. But, you know, looking back at, at some great examples of procedural television, I really saw what I loved about those. And I wanted to write that kind of thing. You know, I wanted to write a team working together that's, you know, they all have their own histories and they have their own personalities that informs their actions, but it's not really what the story is about. You know, it's, they'll go through emotional journeys, but they're on a smaller scale to solving the crime. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that. And I, I wanted to have action and I wanted to write from the villain's perspective and I wanted to try third person. And it was, it was just it, I think I, I worry that I'm making it sound like I wrote the whole thing as an exercise, but <laughs> honestly, it was just, it was more of a luxury than anything else yeah. than me letting myself get to do all this kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Sometimes there's those backstories about like, you know, how the sausage is made <laughs> yes. that there yeah. are these times where you sit down with an idea, uh, where you just want to try something. Uh, that you haven't mm-hmm. done before, it doesn't diminish the end product if you realize that it came out of something that was almost started like an exercise, like, you know, I've never written X before, I'm going to give it a shot. Right. Well, right. if it results in a great story at the end, well, then it doesn't really make any difference that you started it kind of as a... Experiment? Yeah. But, I mean, I'm still so proud of these books, and I, I love them so much, even though they're different from what I'm mainly known for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I lo- love them in part because they're different from what I'm mainly known for. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with them yet. I'm not sure if there's going to be more stories set in this world. Mm-hmm. I'm really pleased with the three-book arc 
Like, I feel like I end the third book in a way that both wraps up what's come before and leaves a door open, which is, you know, kind of the dream as a writer. So, um, so yeah, I, I love these books, you know, like there, I think a lot of writers, you know, have sort of this skeleton in their closet of, of a book or a series that, you know, it's not the one they're known for. And so it becomes almost something you're like quietly ashamed of, but (laughs) man, I adore the series. I, I love writing it so much. I love these characters. I have friends who who will like send me messages like, you know, Alex really isn't good enough for Lindy. <laughs> and just the fact that like my friends get worked up about that and feel the need to talk to me. Honestly, I think my parents have read the Nightshades book, all of the Nightshades books, but not and not all of any of my other series because mm-hmm. it's a very different sort of vibe you know the yeah. the books are a very different atmosphere and um i think of my dad when i write these books because he is a he is the procedural guy he mm-hmm. is not the vampires and werewolves and teen angst guy not that i write any teenagers but i think you get that sort of reputation when you write um urban fantasy with yeah. vampires now we're all kind of lumped into that awful vampire diaries twilight teen yep. romance category and so I think my dad because his tastes don't run in those directions he does not always read my other books but he likes he and my mom both like the nightshades books because it's a different it's a different genre while still somehow being urban fantasy yeah I'm sorry I feel like I've talked forever now (laughs) and I've maybe answered like part of a question that you asked me I don't know you did. I do have one follow-up question, be- just because I can't remember, I may have already asked this. Um, <laughs> so, having written all these various vampire things, I mm-hmm. assume that you have been a fan of the original novel, Dracula. I mean, we actually, we did touch upon that a little bit, because you wrote yeah. the... Um, paper yep the paper on the film were you sort of a long-term fan of the of stoker's novel before you started watching the uh, dracula movies no i read dracula there again i read it in high school no i read it in college and i found it very frightening mm-hmm. i also did not think that the writing held up well mm-hmm. um an opinion which i pretty much maintained I also tend to read from a feminist perspective, and that is not a feminist book. No. You get, you you know, on the one hand, Mina is a very, you know, sort of empowered for that time woman, but she also, like, longs to give Jonathan his babies. You know, like, yeah. it's it's sort of demeaning. Well, it's got I that really... big asterisk, you know, down to yeah. that footnote for that time. Because yes. it's yes. very much of its yeah. time. It is. Um I think that, you know, smarter people than me have pointed out that one of the reasons that Dracula has been so popular for so long is because of its weaknesses as a novel. Uh, Stoker doesn't put in enough description of the mythology. He leaves these gaps. Mm -hmm. And into those gaps, writers have have found the most amazing stories. I'm a big fan of Carrie Vaughn's argument that 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 the book is actually a techno thriller that uh, because the book is about cutting edge technology for yep. their time. Uh, blood transfusions. The is it mimeograph the machine that yeah, 
Yeah, the very telegraph. The dictation the, machines. The, and, the dictation yeah. machine. Oh my gosh, the the dictation machine. Like it, it is about technology almost more than anything else. Um, it's but a the, Crichton the, novel of its time. It is. It is the Crichton novel of its time. Um, and like many Crichton novels now, it's dated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of magic of Dracula is its weaknesses. Whereas I think the magic of Frankenstein is Mary Shelley's strengths as a writer. Mm. Um, Interesting. And that's, and I, I say that without any like bad feelings towards Dracula. I, yeah. I have a lot of admiration and respect for the, for the book. Um, and I think there's a lot in there that is done so well, but I also think that it, it was just kismet again like there's just it was the right moment and the right story at the right time um in literature and it made in a huge splash because of it and then later when it wasn't as relevant by then it had had so many imitators that it had to be relevant you know Mm -hmm. even though the sort of the public discourse and the the topicality of the book had faded and the technology aspect had certainly faded. By then, it had had so many imitators that now you had to look at it as the father of a genre. Yeah. yeah. And as the father of a genre, I think Dracula is fantastic. I don't have the same love for it, though. For me, both Frankenstein and Dracula, I just love, love, love them. Um, when I read them now for the, you know, I don't know, how many times I've read both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the years, as I read more and read and reread them, and as I became a writer and developed my own craft, when I go back and read them now, I certainly pick out more and more the spots where they drag or fall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really doesn't affect my my love for them. I still just no. find them so enthralling and captivating even though there are these, like you said earlier about Frankenstein, <laughs> you, you yeah. could just discuss it for hours and hours and hours. Yes. Um, the pros, the cons, what worked, what didn't work, uh, you know, the, the plot holes, the things that don't even make sense, really. Right. Or <laughs> and, the things that made sense at the time yeah. or hadn't been done before at the time, but now we've seen so many versions that they feel tired. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think I need to wrap up, though, because I'm getting a certain look from a dog that (laughs) I recognize as, we're going to need you over here. Yes. And she's going to start whining and barking in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, my cat has been uh, nudging at me for the last few minutes, too. So um... Hey, hey. Hey, whatever (laughs) you think you're doing, it's not as important as as my needs. Well, I'll be uh, eagerly uh, looking forward to the next uh, Shades book. Or Nightshades book. How do I refer to that trilogy now? Are they called? Boy, them, is it the Nightshades I, trilogy? Has marketing think, decided on the on the term? I don't know using? if marketing has decided. <laughs> I think of it. I call it the Nightshades books, or sometimes the BPI books. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Because that that is also a common thread between yeah. them. But either one works for me. I think on Amazon, they're like like Outbreak is Outbreak. A Nightshades novel. Oh, there you um, go. But yeah, I, that's a marketing decision. That's above <laughs> my pay grade. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course, anytime. Thanks for having me. So much of writing is like a solitary thing that you do in your yoga pants without any human <laughs> contact. 
Yeah. I'm assuming you do it in your yoga pants. <laughs> uh, so I, I love getting the opportunity to actually like talk about some of the things that I spend all my time thinking about. And I'm back, joined by Ella this time. Woo! To give us her exciting con update. She went to a couple of cons this summer. Yes. That I did not attend. First up, Convergence. Convergence was fun, a little quiet for me, except for my one panel that I did with my boss, Aaron, uh, from Discoverage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was a guest on his Enterprising Individuals panel. And who else was a guest? Melinda Snodgrass. Boom! Because the episode was on Measure of a Man, which is confirmed the best Star Trek episode ever, so obviously we had to have the authress, <laughs> Melinda Snodgrass, on. She, I was very concerned. And then I was, like, almost late. In, in real time, in reality, I was, like, right on time. I want to step in here to provide just a little bit more context. Okay. In case people are forgetting, Measure of a Man is a data-focused episode, and from the time, My from the <laughs> from the time Ella started watching Next Gen when she was like seven or whatever, she, I knew that he was going to be my husband. Yeah, loved Data, <laughs> huge Data fan. So that was a huge episode for her, like her whole life practically. Measure of a Man is like you ever just like watch Measure of a Man and cry? <laughs> it's so good. So um, I was just like watching. So you had actually met Melinda at a previous convergence when you were but I was a, a few years a younger. Tiny baby child. And, and now I don't I'm a, think I'm, you, I'm an entire adult. Yeah. You barely I don't think you had the courage to speak to her when I, I like, introduced Hello. you to her the first time. I was like, Okay. Hello. So sorry for the interruption, but I just wanted to set the scene there. So then flash forward to now and you get to be on the panel oh of my your God. favorite episode with the writer. And, then and she, you were almost just, late. I was, al- I was almost late. I wasn't really, I was really, I was exactly on time is what it was. But it was like two minutes before the panel started. I like ran <laughs> into the room <laughs> and got, which was, thank God, like Aaron, like he could have started because they live streamed it. Um, they video streamed it to Facebook too. And it's like, he could have had that already going and I, I would just zoom in, but he wait, he waited for me because he's a he's a perfect angel and professional man. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm a 20 year old, literally running in late with like an energy drink in my hand because I was exhausted because I was still this was like mid paper. I delivered papers all summer, so I was like I took the weekend off obviously for con, but I was like still it's like you don't know where your brain is. Ah, oh, but no, but I was right on time and I was like, hi, sorry everyone, I'm here. Uh, no, so many people. Cool people were on the panel. I don't remember any of their names except for uh, Melinda, obviously. Um, but she just kept saying, like, crazier and crazier stuff. <laughs> like, she just kind of dropped... She was talking about, like, playing a board game. Well, and then, you know, we taught George how to play. Like, George R. R. Martin. And then she, like, launched into this story about how he just, like, decimated them and i was like this is the most on brand thing you taught george R. R. martin how to play a board game and you thought he wasn't gonna destroy you and then he just he red wedding you he did <laughs> oh my god i literally it was already so much just to hear her talking about the episode and then she just starts talking about like george R. R. martin and i'm like i really <laughs> I'm not in a place to handle this. I'm caffeined up. I was almost late. No, it was so fun. But she's though. very personable and approachable. She's, she was so sweet. She was yeah. so sweet. So nice. 
We had a moment after we took a selfie. It was so much fun. Enterprising individuals is always fun, but um, yeah, doing the live panel is always something exciting for me because I went to an arts high school and now I'm in college and I don't I don't get to be on stage anymore, and so that's nice to get some energy out. Uh. <laughs> Before we forget, I just want to do an extra little plug, underscore the other podcast you're talking about, Enterprising, Enterprising Individuals, yep. uh-huh. which is a fabulous podcast that every episode is an in-depth look. Every at episode a just really gives us a episode. run for our money. Yeah, a single episode from across the, the Star Trek spectrum across all the Mm -hmm. series and each episode has a special guest and sometimes they're just super geeks like all of us other times they're celebrity guests like melinda or a bunch of the people that have written star trek novels have been on the show and uh, so yeah it's it you should check it out gotta listen were there any other noteworthy uh, elements that you wanted to talk about i didn't go with anyone who's like a real nerd so i kept just kind of showing up to panels and like sitting in the back by myself <laughs> <laughs> aaron was on a uh marvel panel like an infinity war panel so i went mm-hmm. to that and that was super fun um again sat in the back and then immediately ran out because i hate i hate it when i know a panelist and then it's like oh like i should say hi but then there's always, like, a bunch of other nerds who, like, don't know them. And they, you know, they have other weird things to say. And then I also, <laughs> I also feel like it's like a, it's like a, this mini, like, power move to walk up and be like, Aaron, how are you? In front of, like, 80 nerds. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know the panelist. I'm, you know what I, like. So I ran away very fast. I felt so weird. At the, the next con we're going to talk about, Minnesota Fan Fusion, is the first con that I was ever, like, a guest at. What's the lowdown? What happened? Um, it was so fun. How did you get involved? Uh, last year was their first year in Minnesota, so I went um just to meet Garrett Wang, who played Harry Kim. Again, my husband. And I have many. <laughs> and he was so sweet, and it was really fun. Yeah. Um, And so I already knew about them. And then this year was their second year, and they were getting like some big guests in that I was really, really excited about. Like John Reese davies who played Gimli. Um, my husband. <laughs> and... I decided that I was just going to apply to be like a panelist and see if they would accept me. And uh, they did. And so I was I was a guest and they covered my like event fee, which was so nice. So I was because I was on so many panels, I got a pass like for all weekend um, from the con. Uh, That's good. Yeah, it was so, so nice. And um, everybody that I worked with um, on their end was like. So, so sweet. I talked mostly to a guy named um, Anthony Fuentes, and he was so cool. Everybody was so awesome. Um, I was on almost every Star Trek panel, or every single one, except one. Yeah, you, like, were a force behind their Star Trek I really was. (laughs) And me and Taylor Sisko and uh, Diana Ton, who they are a big part of the team in the Twin Cities who run uh, Star Trek Trivia. Mm -hmm. Um. So they're super cool. Um, we, the three of us were on basically every Star Trek panel <laughs> all weekend, uh, which was so fun. Um, they're really cool. You guys should look them up on Twitter and everything. Um, so that was fantastic. And I was on a Harry Potter panel actually by myself. There's still... Minnesota Fan Fusion is so fun, and this year was definitely like more pop-in than last year, and they had a lot of bigger guests. But, um, you know, your second year, yeah. you're still easing into it. Um, you're still figuring out the space and everything. And so I ended up being the only one on this Harry Potter panel. 
and it went so well. Like, it was so much fun. I had so much fun, like, being on stage, and I was very grateful for my six years of, like, arts experience at my junior high and high school because <laughs> I was just by myself on stage and I was like, hey, so I'm going to, so I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, I was like planning it out because I knew I was going to be by myself and I was like, okay, I think I'm going to stand the whole time because if I'm just sitting, it'll seem like boring. If I'm standing, I can like interact with the audience more and like be more exciting and like really like, just be, like be an entertainer. And it was, it was so fun. Well, I also had like, um, a really good group of people came. Like there was a good, like there was a good range. There was like adults and kids. And so I like talked to the kids in the audience, which is like a thing that I love when panelists are like, oh my God, hi, how old are you? Um, <laughs> so I did that because I was the panelist and all those kids were so cute. It was interesting because I knew that it was going to be awkward at first because I was going to try and have everyone be very like interactive with me mm -hmm. since I was the only one there so I um, started off with a question nobody really wanted to answer and then but then obviously the kids started talking first and so it became very easy and that was really really fun and didn't you do the Star Trek trivia panel by yourself as well yeah but then Diana helped me because she's an angel oh okay um, so all the questions I wrote myself which I think were too hard <laughs> like tag me on Twitter if you want me to like release the PowerPoint but people were like shook <laughs> But it was still super fun, and everyone had a good time, and I gave out, like, suckers, and I gave out Wonder Woman stickers to the uh, guys who won first place. Um, so that was really fun. But yeah, I wrote, I think, like, 25 trivia questions myself. Yeah. I was really happy with all of them. Obviously, we've done Generations Geek panels before, but I've never been, like, I've never had been, like, oh, I have to sit down and take my notes for this panel. Like, I have to, you know? Yeah. And so that was really fun and interesting, and yeah, I felt... It felt fun. It was good. It was nice. Did you get any other autographs, or was it just John Rhys Davies that you no, did No, because year? Nicolaj Coster Waldo, who plays Jamie in Game of Thrones, canceled last minute, which was a bummer, but saved me a lot of money because I think the second I made eye contact with him, I would have bought a photo op. <laughs> um, so, Nicolaj Coster Waldo, I love you. You're obviously listening. You're our biggest fan. Um, please go to Minnesota, but do it when I have more money to spend. There you go. Um, but John Reese Davies, such a such a grandpa. Mm -hmm. He was so so. And he sweet. did a talk too, right? He did a panel. His panel was so sweet. He was like literally. He didn't. So the girl at the panel, the one who was introducing him, was like, "Oh, like John Reese Davies," and we're all like, "Woo!" Like clapping, and we're clapping, and we're clapping. And then she's like, oh, let's try it. He didn't, he didn't hear me. Let's try it. Okay. John Reese John Davies. And we're like, woo, we're clapping, we're clapping, and we're clapping. <laughs> the dude is standing right outside the room, but it's completely phased out of what she's saying to the mic because he's talking to, like, three fans who saw him in the hallway, and we're like, oh, my God. Like, he's, like, completely <laughs> ignoring his own panel to talk to these people. And then after all, he was like, oh, you know, gotta go. And then he walked in. He was like, so, all of you have nothing better to do at 1030 on a Sunday morning than to see me? <laughs> and it was like, and we all laughed, and he was like, I thought you'd all be in church. <laughs> he was so, so sweet. And, um... He was so, when I got my autograph with him, he, like, asked me about, like, asked me a lot of questions about, like, school, and I told him that I was a history major, and, um, so he started asking me, like, oh, like, well, what's, like, what's your specialty, like, what do you like? And I was like, oh, well, like, I love, like, I love studying World War II, like, I love this and that, and he was like, oh, you like military history, and I was like, I'm definitely down with military history, and then I'm kind of down with all of it, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... So he was, like, he started talking to me about, like, naval history, and it was just, like, so fun. Cool. And he was so nice. He talked to me for so long. And then he shook my hand, which always makes me feel so nice. And people are like, oh, well, it's so nice to me. And I'm always like, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to meet the guys from another local podcast, um, our faves from Keep on Tolkien. 
I don't, I'm just gonna. I hope that they don't listen. I hope that Danny and Joel don't listen. Hi. Um, but I. Think I they're listening. They could very well be listening. They could be. I hope they don't. Um, <laughs> I when I started listening to their podcast, we all know that I'm a fangirl. And so I started listening and I was like, like from the first episode, they come across as like, they're, those guys are your best friend. Like they're, and I told him, I told them that I was like, I was really impressed with your show. Like you start off like so strong. And I think part of it is just like the chemistry they have with each other. Like they're really good friends. Yeah. But no, yeah. So I got to meet them and I was like, hi. <laughs> well, yeah. We have to give a big shout out to I these guys. I love them so much. <laughs> because so, so they do this podcast on, you know, everything Middle Earth, hugely enthusiastic about the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings and, and everything. And they'll do super in-depth, like almost scholarly in-depth in their oh research. My God. But then at the same time that they're doing this in-depth scholarly research, they are also swearing like sailors in their yeah, enthusiasm. Yeah, they're not family friendly. So it is I not family friendly. Someday I'm going to get on there and I'm going to be like, Dad, here comes everything that has never come out on Dad right here. It's all... So yeah, we cannot repeat many of the things that they say. But if you're of the right age, it is fabulous because their 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 deep-seated love and enthusiasm for Tolkien's work is so obvious. I, I love the show. They're They're really fantastic. If you like Tolkien at all, they do such a good job of like... This balance between, like, if you know everything and if you don't know anything. So, like, I feel like I'm kind of in this, like, this mid-range of, like, how much stuff I know and, like, how much information I'm able to keep in my yeah. head. Um, and so it's fantastic listening because sometimes it's like, oh, I, like, totally forgot about that. And a lot of, but a lot of times it's like, oh, like, I didn't realize that or I totally forgot about that. And it's just fantastic. They make it accessible even when they're digging in to really obscure stuff out of the Silmarillion or something that people aren't as familiar with. I think it takes, like, a certain type of person to sound so, like, amiable and likable on mic. And they do that every time. And I love them. And I hope they don't listen to this. <laughs> so, you know, of course, I'm going to have to message them and tell them specifically that I listen to this. <laughs> We've mentioned on uh, previous podcasts uh, what's coming up in your life. Ella is going to school in London for the next two semesters. Yes. And so between being in London and being back in college and a six-hour time difference, it'll be a lot more challenging for us to do the show together. So there might be more shows like this one where there's just a little bit at the end. But we'll see. We'll make it work out somehow. Uh, how else can people keep up with your adventures? So if you're not already following us on Instagram, which um, you all should because we're at 78 followers. I checked today. Which means that in 22 followers, we'll have an even hundred. <laughs> and I would uh, love that for my own yeah. ego and confidence. If we could just keep gaining followers on Instagram, that'd be fantastic. And, and everybody be... starts somewhere, so nobody laugh at me for talking about 78 followers. And you'll be posting occasionally cool geeky photos during your oh adventures my God. in London. I have so much stuff planned. Right now, um, I think it's at Oxford, there's like this Tolkien exhibit literally right now of his like illustrations from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and it's open through October so I'm going to go see that. Yep. So there's going to be pictures of that, there's going to be videos of that. Um, I am definitely going to every other nerdy place. I'm going to Stratford-upon-Avon, I'm going to go to Nottingham. Every, I'm going to go to Nottingham. I'm going to Nottingham Forest. I sure would. Go to Nottingham Forest. <laughs> um, I hate myself. 
I'm going to do literally everything possible nerdy. So everyone follow our Instagram because that way you can live vicariously through me <laughs> while I'm living in London and traveling across Europe. That's all the time we have for this episode. On our next episode, I'm not sure what's happening because we've been planning to forge ahead with our epic multi-part review of the Alien series with Alien Resurrection, but we were just too busy to make that happen. I'll find someone fun to interview and hope that Ella will be able to chime in somehow. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from aboard a flight to London. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>